Last autumn, Boris Johnson's reckless complacency directly led to tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. But while his lateness into lockdown, which was against scientific advice, had a huge human cost, up to now the overall political price has seemed to be fairly minimal. Could that be changing though? Today, Johnson's behaviour during the deadly second COVID wave has been cast back into the spotlight after some incendiary comments were leaked to the Daily Mail. And with an open war between Johnson and his old advisor, Dominic Cummings, um, now, I mean, getting loads of dirty, dirty laundry out into the open, might we, against all odds, be about to see some accountability at the top of British politics? Um, that's our main topic tonight. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? Ah, just looking forward to seeing you, as ever. Ah, great. We've got some some meaty stories tonight. It did feel for a while like Boris Johnson was just going to get away with everything, water off a duck's back. But when I saw Laura Koonsberg today on BBC News at Six, kind of trashing Boris Johnson, I was like, "Mm, maybe something is about to change. Um, Other stories tonight, we're going to talk about the anti-lockdown protest in London and Bill Gates' comments over the weekend. He was out defending the system of vaccine patents. Straight on to our first story. No more effing lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high in their thousands. Those are the words Boris Johnson is alleged to have spoken after agreeing to England's second lockdown back in October. Now, the Daily Mail reports that the alleged statement came after Johnson had reluctantly conceded to Michael Gove and others who were demanding a second lockdown to stem the tide of new cases. Now, Johnson had been resisting that lockdown, much publicised, and for quite a while, but he changed his mind after Michael Gove had warned that if action wasn't taken, demand for hospital beds would be so high that soldiers would be needed to keep people out, to keep people from from getting into into hospitals. Michael Gove was painting a picture of, of chaos, essentially, people dying in hospital car parks, people dying on corridors and saying, Boris, you have to take action. Now, the story painted by the Daily Mail, and this has been corroborated by lots of reports, for example, in, in the Times over, over the previous months, is that Boris Johnson was essentially up against Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, Michael Gove, um, Matt Hancock, who were all saying, look, we need to take tough action and we need to take it early. And Boris Johnson was sort of like, oh, I don't really want to. This happened again and again and again when he was finally forced to go into that second lockdown. Remember, this is the second one in October. There was also a, a third one, which we're, we're, we're now in the tail end of now. But in October, he agrees with Michael Gove. He says, let's go into this lockdown, but no more effing lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high in their thousands. Right. So that, that's the context where he, he said that I'd prefer to see loads and loads of people die than do this again. Really quite, I mean, incendiary. And you can imagine him saying it in terms of what the Daily Mail reported um, about the events which took place, they said, a well-placed source said, the PM hates the idea of lockdowns. He kept saying there's no evidence they even work and that it goes against everything I've stood for. But he was outnumbered and ended up sitting in sullen silence as the others told him he had no choice. That's the picture painted. He was pissed off that he had to implement this, this lockdown and says never again, even if there are thousands of bodies piling up. The Daily Mail will clear these are allegations. They don't say it as a statement of fact. They don't have a recording. We're guessing they're from Dominic Cummings or one of his allies. The person who's written the story um, is believed to have got many previous stories from from Dominic Cummings. And obviously it fits into into a pattern um, which we've seen for a few 
days now. Boris Johnson, though, speaking on record, denied he ever said such a thing. Have you ever said that you'd rather see bodies pile up and go into another third lockdown? No, but uh, again, I think the important thing I think people want to uh, us to get on and do as a, a government is to make sure that the, the lockdowns work and uh, and uh, they have and I really pay tribute to the people of this this country this whole uh, country of ours that that have really pulled together and working with the vaccination program we've got the disease under control I mean the numbers of deaths the number of hospitalizations are currently very low so you heard that the journalist said, did you say this? He says no. And then he goes on to talk about how lockdowns work, which is apparently the opposite of what he was saying back in October. But obviously, he wanted to change the subject very quickly. No, he didn't. It was also categorical, which means that if proof comes out that he said it, I mean, he's going to be shown to be a liar, which is why it was very interesting when almost immediately after that interview, the BBC appeared to confirm Boris Johnson had made the comments about bodies piling high. Um, so this came out th this afternoon. Boris Johnson said bodies could pile high during lockdown discussions. Laura Koonsberg, as I, I mentioned earlier, has gone on TV saying she's heard this from numerous sources. ITV and Robert Peston are saying the same. Now, the fact that all of these journalists who are you know, usually not particularly hostile to Boris Johnson are coming out and saying we're pretty confident he said it suggests to me um, that there are some very credible sources here and it can't just be dismissed as Dominic Cummings having an axe to grind. I think if this was all coming from Cummings and say Lee Kane, who are clearly two allies who have some sort of beef with Boris Johnson, it would be unlikely for them to speak with such certainty to suggest that he did say such a thing. So it seems, I mean, it seems likely that he did, but that Boris Johnson is confident there's no recording of it. And so he was happy enough to say, no, I didn't. Um, do you think Boris Johnson said this? Or do you think do you think this could be an act described by Dominic Cummings? And if he did, you know, does it matter? What's the significance of him saying this? Okay, so just in terms of did he say it or not, to me it seems plausible. Beyond the fact it's been corroborated by uh, numerous sources, Peston has too, I'm not sure how many Koonsberg has, it does seem like a Johnsonian turn of phrase. He's the man who said he would rather be dead in a ditch than agree another Brexit extension. This does seem to be within his lexicon, within his rhythm of speech. In terms of how important it is, obviously the political significance here is that you've got somebody like Dominic Cummings and his allies who enjoy very close ties to the kind of media who are normally very supportive of Boris Johnson. Cummings has all but admitted in his blog that he was one of the people, you know, sort of quite regularly uh, briefing Laura Koonsberg, maybe, maybe not. He denies it um, on the matter of, of a second lockdown. But he's somebody who enjoys very close and very friendly relationships with the lobby. And what that means is that the kind of deferent and very hands-off approach that Boris Johnson has been able to capitalize on for the first year and a bit of his tenure is that that looks like a much more precarious situation for him it's not so easy anymore when you look at the front page of today's daily mail which obviously has an overwhelmingly tory leadership you could be forgiven for thinking well oh maybe is the is the editorial team or even the rothermere starting to go off johnson are they trying to prime tory contender who could be waiting in the wings perhaps how important is it for us 
though, as the public, this is the thing that that I've got to say pisses me off a bit because maybe Johnson said it, maybe he didn't. The proof of the pudding was in fact that he did dawdle over the second lockdown and he did dawdle over the third lockdown, just like he dawdled over the first lockdown. What that meant is that the virus was allowed to spread largely uninhibited throughout the population. It meant that by the time we had a lockdown, we were still on that upward trajectory you had uh, cases doubling every fortnight and it meant that tens of thousands of people did die so the bodies did pile up in their thousands so what difference to me does it make if boris johnson said this incredibly callous flippant thing well not very much because he behaved callously and flippantly when it came to policy the thing that really matters that's where we the public were let down and we paid for it with our lives so there's something to me kind of grotesque about the same journalists who i think put a lot of work into manufacturing consent during that period take laura koonsberg for instance who i'll never forget her editorial when we reached the horrible horrible number of 100,000 coronavirus deaths in January, reported it with this kind of lightly surreal and dazed tone. She called it a grim milestone in an abnormal year. You know, I call abnormal like a weird mole or a freckle. Um, I wouldn't call a pandemic in which 100,000 of my fellow citizens have died abnormal. So there was lots of work put in to kind of minimize, I think, the shock and the horror of what we were surrounded by, and a lot of work put in to absolve Boris Johnson of personal responsibility for the indecision and the dithering which led to all those tens of thousands of deaths and so now to see them coming out and not pull their punches purely because a Westminster insider someone who's close to the Conservative Party somebody who has cultivated a relationship with them for you know well over a year now that sticks in my craw a bit because this isn't an insider story it's something that happened to all of us. Mm, no, I, I do think that's absolutely correct. And I mean, especially what you say about, you know, the journalistic side of this, which is that we did know this at the time. I think when it comes to does it matter morally, I don't really think so. I think, as you say, what mattered was what actually happened and what actually happened was the bodies piled up. I don't really care if Boris Johnson used a callous turn of phrase when discussing that in private meetings. I mean, it makes him seem a pretty obnoxious, awful guy, but I kind of thought that already. I care about the consequences of the policy, not the words he used when he was constructing that policy. But I, I do think what you say about journalists is, is really key here because they are so much more willing to print what another political insider has said to them than do any actual original investigate, investigations where they might find out that, oh, wait, you know, all the insiders are doing something wrong. They'll only report it when it gets leaked to them by an insider in this in this situation because Dominic Cummings is now outside the tent pissing in. How I do think it could matter though, I mean, I agree with you morally. I, I don't think Laura Koonsberg has suddenly become a, a courageous journalist. I don't think that um, we've learned something profound about Boris Johnson we didn't know before. But in terms of the political consequences, I do think there was something quite grotesque about seeing Boris Johnson making those decisions which cost so many lives he just seemed to have no regard for human life and the suffering and the pain that COVID was causing and the, the stress and the trauma that people in our hospitals were going through when he was stalling and stalling and stalling, going into, especially that third lockdown actually was when it was most catastrophic. The idea that he was going to just get away with that, like it was absolutely nothing, I did find, you know, almost quite upsetting. So I am in a way glad that now 
journalists again, not because they've suddenly, as you say, turned into brave journalists and speakers of truth to power, but for some, because some insiders brief something to them, they're now talking again about that period of time, which I think Boris Johnson would like to be washed under the carpet. And that is why I want to go on to what we might see next from Dominic Cummings, um, which is recordings, because this headline and the corroboration, I think, was bad enough for Boris Johnson. If we hear some of the terms he used when he was in government, because obviously there has been this real effort to now suggest, oh, it was the science was a bit faulty. They tried their best in difficult circumstances. If people actually hear how Boris Johnson talks, that could cause problems for him, which means these recordings that Cummings potentially has could be very damaging. Um, this is, again, from the Daily Mail. Um, so they write, an ally of Mr. Cummings said the PM's former chief advisor had taken a treasure trove of material with him when he left Downing Street last year, including audio recordings of discussions with senior ministers and officials. Dom has stuff on tape, the ally said. They are mad to pick a fight with him because he will be able to back up a lot of his claims. He used to tell advisers to record things all the time. Discussions with officials, he has also kept a lot of his correspondence. A Whitehall source yesterday said officials did not know the full extent of the material. Now, Ash, I mean, this could be, again, I don't think this is going to change our moral assessment of Boris Johnson, but this could really do political damage to him, right? Because he has quite successfully, with the help of the Laura Koonsbergs of the world, made out that the consequences of his decision were out of his control. Whereas if we get these recordings where we see that actually they were in his control, he just didn't give a shit, right? That could change how people think about him. Well, I think that, look, last week, the government made a calculation, which is they wouldn't want Dominic Cummings back in at any point. So you may as well throw him under the bus by accusing him of being the leaker of the messages between Dyson and Boris Johnson. And they thought, I think that they would be able to uh, weather and price in the cost of that. And it would get people off the topic of the potentially embarrassing text between uh, Boris Johnson and Mohammed bin Salman and this business of the flat refurbishment. And it didn't work. It didn't work because I think that they um, perhaps underestimated the extent to which Dominic Cummings still has a fair amount of pull uh, with friends in the media. Now, the stuff about what he's got on tape, maybe he's got an awful lot, maybe he's got nothing. Uh, maybe it's stuff which isn't all that incriminating or maybe it's stuff which is terrible. I don't know. For me, the thing that's kind of interesting here is even the reporting of it is that this is a man who has really carefully cultivated his reputation amongst a certain group of gossip and insider-obsessed journalists. So he's been able to quite meticulously craft an image of himself as the guy who's always got one more trick up his sleeve. He's always two or three steps ahead. You're not going to be able to, you know, outmaneuver or outstrategize him. Ultimately, when it came to uh, his time in government, he wasn't necessarily a genius. There was some stuff he knew more about than other people. There was other stuff where he had quite drastically overestimated his own power and capability. And so I wonder how much of this is going to turn out to be kosher. You know, I, I can believe that Dominic Cummings is the kind of guy to keep a lot of his correspondence and to, you know, perhaps covertly record meetings and conversations with various high ranking government officials. But I can also see and imagine a world where Dominic Cummings is ringing up journalists pretending to be a friend of Dominic Cummings being like, no, 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 don't, don't say it was me. Uh, 
you know, saying that Dominic Cummings is a strategic genius who has got Boris Johnson's bollocks in a red Balmain handbag. Uh, just attributed to somebody, I don't know, Shmominic Jumming, something that rhymes, something that rhymes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can kind of see this both being legit, having something in it, and also being a bit smoke and mirrors, a bit pantomime. He has achieved quite a lot as a political strategist. I mean, Brexit, he ran a very successful campaign. Then he did, you know, I suppose, confound many people's expectations of the 2019 general election. He does seem to be a genuinely impressive campaigner who can really play the press. When he went into Downing Street, he promised that he was going to radically reform the civil service. And then a big crisis came along and the whole thing collapsed. And, you know, he, he seemed to think that he could solve every problem and he 100% couldn't. So it, it could be that this is the bullshit side of Dominic Cummings instead of the, you know, I don't want to say evil genius because I think that's massively overplaying his hand. But, you know, effective but sinister, um, let's say, the Dominic Cummings of the 2019 general election or the Brexit referendum versus the all talk. I mean, he often seemed a bit like a fraud, didn't he, by the time he went into Downing Street, when he'd said, he built up all of these expectations, and perhaps we don't know which is going to come out here. Dominic Cummings, to me, he is interesting. I find him interesting because he has this combination, I think, of um, being quite a canny reader of the public mood. And of course, you don't know how much of that was the strength of the people that he found himself working with. But I think that he, you know, had a sort of finger on the pulse of kind of reactionary homeowning Britain, and he understood which bits of the Labour vote were soft. And he was quite good at cultivating a message and a campaigning strategy, which zeroed in on those people. Um, and so that's clearly somebody who is politically astute. But also when you read through his blog, and when you hear about some of the things that he'd get up to when he was in government, apparently he would exit meetings by miming, pulling out the pin from a hand grenade, tossing it over his shoulder, and then exiting the room. So it's somebody who seems a bit like Elon Musk wannabe kind of, hey, I'm a Silicon Valley tech disruptor, but he's got a kind of dilettante idea of how they do things in the world of tech and the private sector and just how much of you can apply it of that to the civil service and the work of government. So it is interesting because there is, I think, a, a canny and effective political operator. And as you say, Michael, there is also a pathological bullshitter. And so whenever you've got Dominic Cummings' name in the news and when he's playing this war of briefing and counter-briefing, you don't know which one's at the helm. I mean, I, I do think one thing he seems to be good at, though, is knowing what the public care about. And I do think this body's piling up. I mean, could be genuinely damaging. Obviously, he got that very much wrong when he thought that driving to Bernard Castle would be a, a reasonable um, excuse for breaking lockdown rules. But but there we are. He's a hit and miss guy. Uh, maybe that's going to be our conclusion. <laughs> uh, we're going to go to the next controversy, which the whole um, Cummings-Johnson war has brought out, which is the flat. Alongside claims about his handling of COVID, the other big cloud hanging over Johnson's head concerns the issue of his flat renovation and who paid for it. Now, it's thought that Johnson and his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, spent upwards of £200,000 renovating 11 Downing Street. Actually, they live in 11 instead of 10 because it's bigger. Tony Blair did the same. Now, £30,000 of this is provided by a public grant put aside for renovating um, the Prime Minister's flat. The rest of it was made up, it seems, from private Donors. Now, this included £58,000 provided by Lord Brownlow, a businessman and Tory party donor. And the Electoral Commission has not yet been notified of this donation. And they're supposed to be notified of all political donations. So this is looking pretty 
sketchy. This is another story where many people, you know, in the news media have known about it for a while. It has been written about. It's, it's, it's not really a secret, but it didn't get the attention that it's currently getting until Dominic Cummings, that insider, um, wrote um, about it in quite incendiary terms. So we talked about this on Friday, but to remind you um, of the flat renovations, Dominic Cummings wrote, the PM stopped speaking to me about this matter in 2020. As I told him, I thought his plans to have donors secretly pay for the renovation were unethical, foolish, possibly illegal, and almost certainly broke the rules on proper disclosure of political donations if conducted in the way he intended. Um, so Dominic Cummings, they're saying, I was on the inside. I knew what he was doing was rotten. I told him what he was doing was rotten and I had nothing to do with it. But now I'm on the outside. I'm going to use this against him. Um, I don't really judge him for that, that, that last bit. The Tory line to push back against these claims about Boris Johnson is to say that Boris Johnson has now covered the cost of the renovation. When they say who paid for it, they say Boris Johnson paid for it. The question then is, well, where did the money come from originally? Because no one in the Tory party seems willing to either confirm or deny that the upfront costs were provided by donors. And they also won't confirm or deny whether Boris Johnson's original plan, as per Dominic Cummings' blog, was to have the donors pay for the whole thing. So this idea that now he's paid them back, it seems that that's happened because it became controversial. It's also, they won't confirm why the Electoral Commission hasn't yet been notified about this. They should have been notified by now. Now, this is the background. You need to understand this very, very awkward appearance from Trade Secretary Liz Truss on Sky on Sunday. You keep saying that he has declared it, but, but, but he hasn't. We, we, we don't know when he paid this money. And it's the timing, isn't it? It's crucial. Have you had a conversation with him about it before you, you came on this morning to do these round of media interviews? As I said, I know that the Prime Minister has acted within the rules that he has covered the costs of the flat refurbishment himself and I think that this issue is a massive distraction from what we should be focused on which is how we are recovering from the pandemic the vaccination program and the work we're doing to rebuild the economy. Um, how do you know then that, he, that he's not broken the rules? You must have had a conversation with him. He must have uh, told you when he paid it then. If, you, if you're convinced that you know he hasn't broken the rules, whereas Dominic Cummings told him that what he was doing was potentially illegal. Well, I have been assured that the rules have been fully complied with. And I know who, who that assured he you of that? has met the costs of the flat refurbishment. But who assured you of that? I absolutely believe and trust that the Prime Minister has done that. I mean, the interview is about 15 minutes long, but that section went on for about six minutes, just of her saying, I believe the Prime Minister that has paid for it. And she's like, yeah, I know the Prime Minister has paid for it. Everyone knows that now. But who paid for it originally? She's like, well, I believe that he has paid it and it's all been declared. She's like, it hasn't been declared. It was supposed to be declared to the Electoral Commission. It hasn't been declared yet. The government said, oh, we haven't got around to filling our, our return to the Electoral Commission. They're supposed to do it twice a year. They only did it once last year. They haven't done it at all this year. So we are overdue this information as to who paid for the Prime Minister's flat. Um, we haven't yet been provided that information. The other context I find very interesting here is why Boris Johnson was so willing to risk all of this political capital on getting a flat renovated. And here, I mean, I don't want to put it all on Carrie Simons because I know there's sort of 
you know, people think it could be sexist to see her as the the brain behind Boris Johnson when it comes to flat renovations. I have absolutely no idea. What I do know is that in a profile of of Carrie Simons in a Tatler in Tatler magazine very recently, um, she described the day court left to them by Theresa May as a John Lewis furniture nightmare, um, and they've called in uh, a very fashionable interior designer Lulu Little um, to do the renovation. Um, which, you know, as I've said, and we believe cost around £200,000 to do up a flat with fancy furniture. Ash, how damaging do you think this particular story could be? I mean, look, like you, I'm wary of feeding too much into a kind of Marie Antoinette narrative of it's the woman, the wife, the fiancé who has these frivolous tastes and is furnishing them in ways which are, you know, underhand or somehow tacky and insulting to the public and and notions of public decency. I'm wary of playing into that. But when you hear something like, oh, God, we inherited a John Lewis nightmare, I think John Lewis is quite nice. Am I? I, I thought John Lewis was posh. No, yeah, John Lewis is quite nice, yeah. It's a really popular brand among the general public as well. It's a really stupid thing to say to a magazine. I got a secondhand John Lewis chair for 50 quid and it's my most prized possession. When people have Mm. like, you know, asked like, where's the chair from? I'm like, very proud. I'm like, it's John Lewis, actually. As if I'm saying like, it's by Chanel. Like, that's how I feel. And now I realize that there's this whole layer of posh above it, which looks at, you know, John Lewis as a bit like Araviste or a bit um, tacky or gauche. And I'm like, Fuck you. Um, but that's a side point to the political one, which I promise I'm about to make. And I think it is, I, I think that this sort of shows two things. One is the weakness of the sort of standards and checks and balances that we should have. You know, we have a government which hasn't been um, declaring its donations as regularly as it ought to have been. And we haven't had a sense of that being a problem up until there's an internal fracture within the Conservative Party, within the government itself. You've got an ex-advisor left out in the cold and suddenly you have this wave of briefings and it's able to become a new story and it's rolled up and it, you know, has legs and it runs because he's got good contacts with that upper echelon of journalists who can really make something happen. And when it came to something like Greensill, it really took a while for that to develop into a broadcast news story. First, you had some very diligent hacks at the FT covering it, and then you had um, journalists at the Sunday Times, but it took a while and you had the sense of it being an uphill struggle. So even though there was quite plainly a story there, there wasn't enough um, traction in it until it started causing problems internally for the Conservative Party itself. So I do think that there's something here about the weaknesses of our checks and balances on power, the weaknesses of our standards and the corrosion of standards in public life. Because I think the minute you start having that kind of uh, slippage where you don't have donations being declared and you do have this kind of mystery spending for a luxury redecoration of the prime minister's apartments, then that should immediately be a story. It shouldn't only... uh, come to public notice and become a problem when Dominic Cummings is feeling a bit pissed off. Again, as I said, I don't think we should just do the Marie Antoinette thing, because I think this also tells us something about Boris Johnson, the fact that the flat was redecorated um, for 200 grand when past prime ministers 
And, you know, as much as she was a shit prime minister, Theresa May didn't seem like someone who was only out for herself, who thought that she should always have, um, you know, she didn't come across as the most entitled of people, whereas Boris Johnson is an incredibly entitled person. So it does seem to me that he was like, well, I spent all my life trying to be prime minister. I should at least have a really fucking nice flat. And they were when they were talking about creating this trust. Um, so they were saying, we're going to create this trust, which is specifically where people can donate money to do up the flat. They were like, the White House has one. Why don't we have one? You know, so they're like, I should have all the trappings of power and glamour um, because I've worked to get here. You've got to remember, this was in the middle of, well, one, the Brexit crisis. And then more importantly, the COVID crisis when tens of thousands of people were, were dying, right? And the people working day and night in hospitals, trolleys filling up of people, you know, a really horrific moment for the country. And they're like, well, why isn't my flat as good as President Trump's flat? Right. Can well, I also say something I really, nice really, I mean, this might make me out to be a bad lefty, but this is also why it's a bit different from the um, furnishing of the White House and the special money put aside for it. Because the mm. fact is, is that if if you can go from a John Lewis nightmare to Lulu, whatever, it kind of shows that you don't have these like huge limitations on what you can do inside to Downing Street's kind of within the remit of personal taste of Theresa May looks John Lewis it's John Lewis if um Carrie Simmons and Boris Johnson like this other person whose name I can't remember but it sounds Lulu Little Lulu Little um they can have it like that whereas for the White House it's different so quite famously Jackie Kennedy uh when she was the first lady refurnished and did up the White House which was looking kind of tired with his with historical pieces of furniture. So she sourced furniture, which was from the time that the White House was constructed Mm -hmm. and made that into um, her thing to try and preserve a sense of history of the White House. She was also quite famous, I think, for, um, you know, doing up the the Lincoln bedroom and turning that into a kind of famous historical place as well. And it then became very gendered, obviously, because the role of a first lady is so gendered and it was seen as the remit of the first lady was to through the means of soft furnishing and furniture and kind of strategic acts of buying to preserve and maintain the history of the white house which is also why melania trump got a a reputation for being very tacky because when she did the christmas trees it looked like you know hangings from the handmaid's tale or something so it is a little bit different in the sense that in the White House, you do have this long pre-established role for first ladies to operate within certain constraints in terms of time period of furnishings and their style to redo the White House. You haven't had quite the same thing for Downing Street. Um, there are arguments to be made about what kind of money you put into preserving uh, the history of Downing Street and so on and so forth. But to me, that doesn't sound like what's going on. It's just like, they thought Theresa May was tacky and gauche, and so they wanted rid of her furniture. No, I take that. So you're saying the White House is more like a kind of heritage site, whereas Downing Street is just a flat that no one gets to see anyway. Well, yeah. You, just, yeah. You, don't, you don't need this sort of £200 pocket money just to make it express yourself in this space. So it really speaks no, to you. Also, are you telling me that those two weren't rich enough already? Because he got a quarter of a million from the Telegraph to be their columnist. Are you telling me he didn't put some away? It's the divorces and the child support and stuff because he has got a lot of, you know, I think he's probably not particularly, I think he probably accrues liabilities actually quite um, very quickly, finally. And we're going to go on to anti-lockdown protests in one minute. Why do you think Dominic Cummings is doing this? Because I think this is quite an interesting question. I was talking to Aaron about this last night on WhatsApp and he was saying, 
this guy's not going to be able to get any jobs after this because if you are known as someone who records conversations with your bosses and then when they sack you, you release them to the press, like no one's going to employ that guy again, are they? So, you know, what's the, does he think he has enough independent money that he doesn't need to work again and he just wants to take down Boris Johnson for the lols? Or what is he, what's he aiming his, to do? do his wife's an aristocrat. Remember? True. His wife's an aristocrat. His father-in-law owns like, a massive castle and i also think that he he has plenty of employment prospects because when you think about we've talked about this a lot the revolving door from westminster into like top lobbying agencies consultancy you know after dinner speakers events there's a lot of money out there and it doesn't matter how many political enemies you've made while you were in westminster as long as you were never a socialist do you know what I mean? So you could have been terrible at your job. You could have poisoned the relationships of everyone who worked with you. And there are, you know, there's a whole section of capital just willing to snap you up because, you know, you enjoyed access to number 10 for a while. So I don't think he's going to struggle for employment, even though he recorded people's conversations. I think that might even add to, you know, sense of intrigue surrounding. I, know, I feel like there might be a bit of a code where, you know, if you're an insider, you're not supposed to blurt it all out to, to everyone. We'll see this. We won't go too deep into Dominic Cummings' psyche now because we're going to move on um, to the psyche of the anti-lockdown masses. Over the course of the pandemic, there have been quite a few high-profile opponents of lockdowns and public health measures, um, which which we needed to, to limit the spread of COVID. So Julia Hartley Brewer come to mind, Toby Young comes to mind. People who were saying, no, these lockdowns are nonsense. It's all false positives. Um, COVID isn't that big a deal. It's just like flu. This, for most of the pandemic, has been a pretty elite pastime in a way. So you've had lots of people agitating for this, often promoted in newspapers like the Daily Telegraph. But the overwhelming majority of the public have been actually very much in favour of lockdowns when they're needed and very much in favour of strong public health measures to resist a disease which they see as a real and significant threat. However, this weekend in London, we saw a protest against lockdowns and against COVID restrictions, which looked quite a lot bigger than anything we've seen before. Um, so we can take a look at the images there. So this isn't just Julie Hartley Brewer in her talk radio studio. This is a significant number of people. Um, the demonstration was organised under the banner of Unite for Freedom and several thousand people turned up, um, reporting tended to put it at around 10,000 people, which is fairly significant. So the key demands in which everyone there seemed to agree on was being against lockdowns and being against vaccine passports. Also, uh, many people there against vaccines in general or people sceptical about COVID altogether. So it was a bit of a motley crew. I was, I have to say, though, fairly surprised at how diverse it looked. You also saw there Piers Corbyn, um, Jeremy Corbyn's um, fairly cranky brother, and Lawrence Fox, both of them, in fact, standing to be London mayor, I think both hovering at around 1% in the polls. The banners there says one saying no masks, no vaccines, no lockdowns, obviously fairly incoherent because you're going to have a lockdown unless you have masks and vaccines. You know, I suppose these people were never famed for their coherence. Um, some other signs that we sort of picked out when we slowed it down, someone had written, plandemic, deep state cabal, paedophiles, we see you, clearly a sort of QAnon type right wing conspiracy theory via the United States. Um, and another one had a picture of Boris Johnson and a vaccine. It said, why are we taking health advice from people who believe in overpopulation? It's not actually an idea I could particularly associate with Boris. I was thinking more David Attenborough um, when, when I saw that. But I think that's more um, about some you know, big mass conspiracy, the establishment uh, trying to 
give out vaccines to kill some of us or control some of us. I'm not that um, well attuned with, with all of these theories, I have to say. We can go to some of the main characters to look at what they're saying about these things, because I think actually the most significant question here is vaccines. The lockdown's almost ending anyway, right? So there is a case of how slowly do we remove the restrictions. But is this an anti-vax movement? That's probably what's most important in terms of public health. Lawrence Fox on this one, who we just um, mentioned, he is not anti-vax in the extent to the extent that he thinks older people should take it, but he doesn't think he should take it. So he tweeted um, last week, sharing a picture of his invite to get a vaccine. He says, I'm busy that day, I'm afraid. There's no need to vaccinate the healthy. Much as there was no need to quarantine the healthy, this stupidity needs to stop. Now, again, that's the kind of attitude which is going to leave us in lockdowns much longer than we need to be. Um, Ash, we have become used on this show to sort of discussing the, the Julie Hartley brewers of the world, the sort of lockdown skeptics who are often paid by Rupert Murdoch or by big, um, often sort of landlord interests, people who were desperate to get people back to the office. But it hasn't seemed like a popular movement. But that did look both quite big and quite, you know, I don't want to say representative. I mean, it was it looked mainly white people from from the video I showed, but not only. And that the age spectrum seemed quite significant. Do you think it was significant what we saw? I mean, let's just deal with the Lawrence Fox thing head on, <laughs> okay, all right? Yeah. Because the man is a fucking numpty. I'm sorry. There's no need to vaccinate the healthy. What do you think a vaccine is? You didn't yeah. give the smallpox vaccine to people who already had it. That's not how vaccines work. You literally vaccinate the healthy. That's what you're supposed to do. Anyway, I digress. It's just, I think when you see somebody who has permanently damaged the bit of their brain, which is capable of processing shame, and they can just say any old shit, it does, it does wind me up, which is precisely what he wants. So there we go. Who's the real loser here? It's me. <laughs> um, I think that if you're looking at, at the kind of crowds that we saw at the weekend at the anti-lockdown protests, and you try and assign one explanatory factor you're always going to be missing out a whole load of stuff now obviously these aren't people with whom i share values politics and i think most you know all of them really have been misled by false and unreliable and sometimes downright dangerous and conspiratorial information however i think that there are lots of different things which have driven people there i think one aspect of it is to do with civil liberties i think there have been a lot of people including um people who who are very well regarded who you know for instance are part of the left who have worked on civil liberties campaign who've always seen the kind of coronavirus powers as being potentially dangerous which ones of those will become permanent which ones of those will result in some kind of government overreach so there's some really legitimate fears there which then get turned into i think and distorted into a wider you know completely blanket anti-lockdown point of view and even a conspiratorial one it doesn't change the fact that in there somewhere is a seed of plausibility, if not truth. So I think that that's one thing that's driving people there. I think another, and this explains, you know, for a lot of young people why they're there, is that there's a complete, I think, lack of trust in shared sources of information. Uh, the public sphere has been I think, utterly degraded, not just by social media and, you know, online fake news, but by people who consider their jobs as journalists fundamentally to be holding the public to higher standards of uh, accountability than those with power. 
I think what that's resulted in is a sense of, well, who's looking out for us? You can't trust anybody. I'll make my own mind up. And again, that is something which I think can make people quite vulnerable to uh, misinformation and conspiratorial thinking. It doesn't mean that there's not, again, a seed of plausibility or a seed of truth there in terms of what led to that breakdown in trust, but it can leave people in a really, really vulnerable position. And then I think you've got this broader mood, which is, I think, a state of denial. And it's something that we saw from the very start of this pandemic in a much milder way. It was something that I kind of experienced myself because think about it, Michael, for our lives, right? Living here in this country, the age that we are, what impact have pandemics had on our lives before, right? Zero. Um, when it came to things like SARS or bird flu, because we were so insulated from it here in the West, it was almost like it was kind of a dud. So we didn't register it in the same way. It never felt truly real in the same way. And so I think that there was this kind of uh, base level of disbelieving, which made it hard to adjust to the reality and the seriousness of just what it is we were dealing with. Now, most people adjusted to that really quickly and got their heads around what was happening. But I think for a lot of people that that sense of disbelieving, that sense of unrealness persevered. And again, it was something which made them particularly vulnerable and uh, amenable to more conspiratorial ways of dismissing the whole thing. And it comes from a place of, well, I don't want to change my life to accommodate this new shared social reality. So why should I? Why should I? I would rather that this wasn't happening. And in a consumerist society, you're quite used to being able to go, I want this, I don't want this, and that being what you do or do not get. Um, so I think that that's another thing which drives people being out there. So yeah, I think a lot of these people are dangerous. I think they're wrongheaded. I completely disagree with them. But I think that there's a spectrum almost, and people don't start off being complete cranks i think that there are seeds of plausibility which get amplified distorted warped built on and indeed then they blossom into something which is um, a lot more harmful i mean some of the demands are reasonable as well i mean the critique of vaccine passports very legit i was i was reading one of them anyway and we were sort of tweeting is is unnecessary to have vaccine passports at this point given that so many of us are going to be vaccinated soon anyway i think that's probably true um, but then it gets wrapped up with all this this nonsense now while the grassroots agitation against public health measures were on show on saturday on sunday the true original kingpins of lockdown skepticism were back carl hennigan and sinetra gupta who were the most influential opponents of lockdowns last winter even having a meeting with boris johnson and, and rishi sunak about it in september um they were completely wrong um it was very damaging their advice probably cost lives. Anyway, they were back on the front page of the Sunday Telegraph calling for all restrictions to be removed in June. Um, so we've got there the, the website version of it. It was on the, on the front page of the Telegraph. Now, again, some of this is, is reasonable. They're saying that vaccine passports won't be necessary given the vaccines are effective. Um, probably true. Um, but the whole thing here and the fact this makes its way so easily to the front of the Telegraph, I do find pretty problematic. One, because they're just there to sort of rush. Everything's a rush, 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 rush. And I think actually the approach the government is taking in this situation, which is, you know, slow and steady, let's get there, but we don't have to, you know, we don't have to say everything goes back to normal on the 21st of June. We can slowly get back to normal while we're looking at the data. They're saying, no, don't bother doing that. 
There's no risk anymore. The risk is completely gone. Let's just drop everything back to normal 21st of June. And I mean, again, that would be nice to believe. Might even be true. Might even be possible. You know, I, I don't think that's beyond the realms of plausibility that we could drop everything on the 21st of June and we wouldn't have a catastrophe afterwards. But these are the last people in the world, I would believe, when they say this. Probably actually Piers Morgan and Lawrence Fox would be slightly higher, but these are fairly close. Um, Sunetra Gupta is at Oxford. Um, epidemiologist, theoretical epidemiologist. She has been wrong so many times in this pandemic. It's unreal. That's why it's so unreal that she got invited to Downing Street in September. This is um, an article from May 2020. So May 2020, after the first wave. So Netra Gupta, COVID-19 is on the way out. This is Freddie Sayers writing up an interview with her. You can watch the whole interview on YouTube. It says, the author of the Oxford model defends her view that the virus has passed through the UK's population. Now, the Oxford model there was her view um, put out in May that potentially already two-thirds of the people had had COVID-19. This was in May in 2020. And so therefore, we'd got to herd immunity. By that point, 35,000 people have died. We now are 150,000 people. So that was as wrong as you can be. Carl Hennigan um, also um, has a history of being as wrong as you can be on this. Um, this is from September 2020, just before our catastrophic second wave. Boris Johnson must bin the rule of six and stop panicking. The Prime Minister has made one cautious catastrophic error after another. So he's saying the problem with Boris Johnson is he's just been too cautious, which is probably why you have Boris Johnson in those meetings saying, I'd prefer to see bodies pile up than have another lockdown, because he's got these academics with big titles under their names telling him you don't need to do it. Still, they have a direct line to the Telegraph and can appear on the front page. I find that personally pretty worrying. I mean, I, I do think that if you've made this many catastrophic errors, you shouldn't be able to get put on the front page of a newspaper anytime you make a statement. Ash, am I being overly harsh? You know, everyone makes mistakes. Is that, what, is that what's happened here? Maybe they've got this one right, even if they got everything um, wrong a year ago or four months ago. No, I mean, and this is kind of the thing about journalism and politics is that it looks at academia in very, very reductive ways. So the academics you like, people who you agree with, people who serve particular political purposes are elevated almost into being spokespeople for their entire discipline. So even though Sinatra Gupta and Carl Hennigan are, are minority voices within their field and a lot of their work has been robustly criticized and some of it has been uh, discredited and debunked is that these are people who by virtue of being helpful for a political narrative are able to enjoy really close relationships to those in powerful positions in politics and in journalism and this is something that you see all the time which is people who maybe haven't done so well in their field of academia who many of their work has been criticized by their peers you see this in the humanities all the time um, are sort of adopted by various politicians and various papers as a kind of you know prof washing is what I'd call it, you know? So you sprinkle in your, you know, PhDs and your professorships and it legitimizes and launders dodgy opinions, shall we say. And that's kind of the role that you see Sinatra Gupta and Carl Hennigan playing in terms of the public conversation. Now, they might be completely sincere in a lot of the things that they're saying, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a minority view. In terms of where the data um, shows effective action being taken, it's not where you see uh, lockdown skeptic policies being implemented. It's ones where you have 
um, you know, quick action really early on, and then slow unlocking, which is responsive to what the data and what the testing is telling you. It's the opposite of what they're saying. So I agree with you. I think that it's dangerous. I think it's wrongheaded to platform these people in this kind of way. But it's happening because it serves a political purpose. And it's one which gets people into the offices as quickly as possible, returns to an economic status quo where people are, you know, exploitable when they're worried about their job, when they're, you know, in really precarious positions. And things go back to the very worst of how it used to be. Not just the fun stuff of getting back in the club, which we all want. Yeah, no, I agree. And I thought, I mean, we should clarify, I, I'm sure when you say we shouldn't platform, you don't mean we should no platform Carl Hennigan. It's more that you shouldn't put on your headline, scientists believe all restrictions should be dropped on the 21st yeah, of June I'm, without I'm putting in the second paragraph, by the way, all of these scientists were wrong, 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 wrong over and over again for the past 12 months. I'm absolutely not talking about no platforming. I'm talking about the contextualizing is really important. So what kind of yeah. platform do you give somebody? Um, when you have had, you know, Sinatra Gupta, for instance, on Radio 4, um, it was, I think, a very light touch, soft interview, which was deferent uh, to the academic title. And so that's what I mean by platform, one which takes the title of professor at face value and doesn't do any deeper digging. Absolutely. No, I got that. I got that. I just wanted to. Cool. Wanted yeah, to yeah. I'm not, I'm not... A lot of people want to say, oh, Navarro, they want to know platform everyone. I know you don't want to know platform everyone. I just wanted to make that clear. Just you. Just you. Are, you. If you are enjoying our show, the platform we give to ourselves and everyone who comes <laughs> on our show, um, please do. And the people we exclude, maybe you fund us because of the people we don't platform. Who knows? I can't decide. If you are a financial supporter, thank you so much. Um, you make this possible. If not, please do go to navarromedia.com forward slash support. While the remarkable development of successful COVID vaccines is already allowing much of the rich world to return to something approximating normal life, the majority of the world's population living in the global south are having to wait. That's because the vaccines, most of which are owned by Western pharmaceutical companies, have been snapped up by those governments most able to pay. So how can we resolve this inequality? Well, one option is to share the vaccines already being produced more fairly. This would mean donating mostly Western produced vaccines to the global south. The other is to allow developing countries to produce their own. Now, this would require waiving patents on the vaccine. So anyone can get the recipe and no one can get fined or sued if they make a vaccine which someone else has originally developed. Now, the model we're relying on at the moment is that people will benevolently give away their vaccines. It's not being particularly effective. The second, um, there is a broad coalition of people who want to waive patents on COVID-19 vaccines. This map, um, if you've been on Twitter recently, this gets shared over and over again. I think it's a very important map. Um, it's showing you the different um, positions which there are across the globe when it comes to vaccine patents. So here you see in yellow um, countries who have come together to say there should be no patents on COVID-19 vaccines so that anyone can get the recipe and anyone can produce the vaccine. You can see there, you've got China, India, most of Africa, all of Africa, in fact, much of South America, Indonesia. Um, you've essentially got most of the global South. Then the countries who are opposing this is mainly the rich world. So you've got the United States, you've got all of Europe, you've got Australia, you've got Japan. You've also slightly anonymous, or as a slight exception, you've got Brazil, which isn't a particularly um, rich country. Um, looking at this map, um, you probably come to the conclusion that this is another situation where the rich world 
is exploiting the poor or at least um, not providing um, the world with the resources that would improve people's quality of life because they want to pr preserve their own right to make profit. That's probably what I think is going on here. Not everyone does, though. One man disagrees. Bill Gates was on Sky this weekend to mark a year since the launch of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. Now, the accelerator is also known as ACT, brings together government scientists and philanthropists to help develop and distribute technologies to fight COVID. Um, in the interview, though, COVID, you know, Bill Gates is talking about how we can get vaccines to people, but he's very, very clear this should not include waiving patents on vaccines. I'm going to take a look at the interview, and this is his answer to the question. Do you think it would be helpful for the vaccine recipes to be shared? No. Why not? Well, there's only so many vaccine factories in the world, and people are very serious about the safety of vaccines. And so moving something that had never been done, moving a vaccine from, say, a J&J factory into a factory in India, that it's novel. It's only because of our grants and our expertise that can happen at all. The, the thing that's holding things back in this case is not intellectual property. There's not like some idle vaccine factory with regulatory approval that makes magically safe vaccines. Uh, you know, you've got to do the trials on these things and every manufacturing process has to be looked at in a, in a very uh, careful way. There's all sorts of issues around intellectual property having to do with medicines, but not in terms of how quickly we've been able to ramp up the volume here. You know, I remember how shocked people were when we said we were going to do second sources in these developing country factories. Uh, you know, that that was a novel thing. We got all the rights from the vaccine companies. They didn't hold it back. They were participating. I do a regular phone call with the pharmaceutical CEOs to make sure that work is going at full speed. That was Bill Gates saying, look, there's no point in sharing the recipes. There are no idle factories. Any factory that can be making the vaccine is making the vaccine. And also he adds, by the way, anyone that is making a vaccine in the global south is basically doing it because of our grant money, um, which, I mean, is, is, is one perspective. Um, is he right? Um, I'm joined by Stephen Barani, a science journalist who's written extensively about the pharmaceutical industry and the development of COVID vaccines to tell me. Um, you've also been on the show a few times. Lovely to have you back, Stephen Baranyi. Um, What did you make of Bill Gates' argument in that particular clip? You can always trust a guy who's on the phone with the CEOs of every pharmaceutical company every <laughs> week. Um, that, that's a guy I want to put my uh, my trust in to solve this crisis. Um, I mean, basically, he's he's being purposely obtuse here, right? Um, like he's he's wrong on the face of it, uh, saying there aren't any idle factories. I mean, I, I published in the Guardian just the other day um, a factory in Canada, um, a company called BioLice that wants to make the J and J vaccine. Um, they haven't heard back. They've got the bioreactors. They've got you know enough enough stuff to make about twenty million doses a year. Not a huge amount, but you know it sort of puts the lie to the idea that. Um, you know, nobody's going to do it. Um, there's factories in Bangladesh that have come forward, things like this. Um, but the, the bigger issue is he basically says that there's no way to do it any faster. Um, and, and he's being obtuse about sort of how this works. I mean, there's no way that you could just waive the patents today and a factory will make vaccines tomorrow. Um, but that's not what people are asking for. You know, they're asking for like a joined up international effort to build up production from the very base level, um, which basically deals with all of his critiques. You know, there aren't enough materials, there aren't enough factories. I mean, what we're saying is we want something like there was in the past. We want something like there was for smallpox, um, you know, where there's a global coordinating body and they help every country build up capacity to take on this thing. 
I mean, he, would he not say that's what his ACT UP? Well, it's not called ACT UP, sorry, I've got that wrong. It's his accelerator, his COVID accelerator <laughs> was supposed to be to transfer technology, wasn't it? But it was while leaving all the power within the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, exactly. And do you think if he did that without the patents, it would be more effective? I mean, if he didn't do it at all, it would be more effective. If he let the WHO use their own accelerator, which is what they want to do, um, and he he sort of jumped in front of them and said, "Oh no, we're going to do it my way," and then nobody did either of the ways. Um, so I mean, it just it, it does seem like a big distraction. You know, you want to read him in as good faith as possible, but he just does seem very purposely obtuse. You know, he says, um, "You know, there's no capacity," and we're saying we want to build capacity, and you know, mm. no answer. And then you know, you say uh, we want to joined up you know, worldwide effort like we had in the past. And he says, oh, I've got one. Uh, and then, you know, totally ignores the, the WHO trying to do the same thing. Um, so it really does seem like he's just trying to sort of block the conversation. Um, and he knows he's not going to get a follow-up um, to that question, right? Yeah, I mean, it's super complex. And thank you for coming on here to explain that. I want you to interview Bill Gates next. Um, let's go back to the Gates interview because part of his complacency about the ownership of vaccine patents um, seems to stem from the view that he thinks that basically... I mean, if you add it to that previous clip, thanks to him, um, things are going pretty well right now anyway. Well, over the balance of the year, uh, the U.S., the U.K. and others will be able to make sure that the vaccines are now going to the developing countries. Because many of the vaccines worked, uh, you know, although we're looking at you know, some of the side effects now and making sure we can treat those and that they're very rare, that good news means that we will be able to supply others. And the other good news is that the actual death rate from this epidemic in the poorest countries has actually been quite low. And so the places where, you know, you want to get everyone over 60 vaccinated, like South Africa, Brazil, uh, you know, that that will become a priority uh, just in the next, you know, three or four months is when the U.S. will move into that uh, excess uh, position and take these Act A resources and use them uh, to get those vaccination levels up as, as fast as we possibly can. You know, it is true that there's been about a four month gap uh, that, depending on what happens with J&J, could be over six months. Typically in global health, it takes a decade between when a vaccine comes into the rich world. Uh, and when it gets to the, the poor countries. So there you saw the argument. He's basically saying, look, you know, normally it would take 10 years for people in poor countries to get the medicines we're using in the West. Um, if it's four months to six months, I don't get why people are complaining. What did you make of, of that particular argument? His voice is really annoying. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, he's basically saying, you know, we used to do a terrible job at this. We're doing a better job. But even now that we're doing it faster, you'll get yours when we're done. You know, like we're going to do business as usual. Um, we're going to let the pharmaceutical producers handle production all on their own in total secret. No transparency about production, no transparency about supply. It arrives when it does. First come, first served. Um, and you can you can eat when we're done. Um, and I mean, the way that I think I always think about this myself, and I, I encourage other people you know, to think this way, is to ask yourself, like, do you think that they think this is a crisis? 
you know, because they're doing things the, the same with the same business model that, that they were before. It's just that the vaccines got developed a bit faster. It's it's first come, first served. Um, it's all secret. You know, they're not they're not they're not sharing anything, they're not doing tech transfer. Um, you know, there's no there's no none of this idea of like, you know, war footing where we're gonna you know, marshal every resource and, and profits and productivity be damned. You know, we're just gonna beat this thing. Um, they're approaching it as if it, it weren't a crisis. Um, and I, I just think that's very telling. You know, we'll get ours, and then you know, the 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 rest of the world can have it when we're done. Mm, so you're saying this is as quick as it can go within the parameters of the status quo. So why are people complaining? That's always the thing with Bill Gates. I mean, uh, you know, he built this this reputation because the the cures that he wants to fund are, you know, that's good. He's a techno optimist. You know, that's that's the money he gives to science you know, that's great. Um, but he has a very narrow view of how the world and politics can work. Um, and, and not only is it like very narrow, it's, it's very ahistorical. You know, it's this, it's this incredibly marketized, um, it, the private sector can, has to do everything. And all you can possibly do is like slightly incentivize them or like fill the gaps, um, where they can't produce. Um, and he's never going to compromise that. Um, even, even now, you know, in the middle of this, this crisis. He's not up for compromising it, however serious the crisis is. One more clip of Bill Gates, because this one is where I think the political assumptions really come through. In this bit, he's pushed by the host on whether he thinks the gap between access to the vaccine for the rich world and the poor world is a problem at all. Yes, uh, the reason our you know, foundation-funded Gavi, which the UK is also a huge back rub, is to deal with these unbelievable health inequities. And as I said, in this case, it's about a four to six month delta. That's not fair, uh, but that's actually doing very well. You know, given that the the funding that was provided, the fact that the rich countries have somewhat prioritized themselves, uh, you know, that's not completely surprising. We don't have world government that sits there and, you know, ignores the, the US R&D money or UK R&D money and overrides that because the... You know, the fact of getting elderly people vaccinated in the rich countries, which actually had the pandemic worse than most of the developing countries, that was a good thing. The fact that now we're vaccinating 30-year-olds in uh, the UK and the US, and we're not yet, we don't have all the 60-year-olds in Brazil and South Africa, that's not fair. Uh, but, uh, you know, within three or four months, the vaccine allocation will be getting all the countries that have uh, the very severe epidemic. And so Act A, you know, it doesn't get a perfect grade, but it does get a very high grade that the second source deals did happen. And now, uh, you know, it's going, we're going to get to the point of equity. He's basically saying it's either this system we have now, which is based on, you know, national governments, corporations, and the odd philanthropist, or it's world government. That's the sort of the options he's presenting to us. You've got the status quo or you've got world government. I mean, how, how would you respond to, to that particular argument from Bill Gates? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's the centrist motto, man. You know, thing, things cannot be better. You know, we can't, we can't imagine any sort of uh, better world. Um, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as always. It's stalling, it's sort of false equivalencies, um, and it's all sort of based around continuing to do things the way we currently are. 
um, which is which is just business as usual. Um, and I mean, the reason I keep saying that it's ahistorical is that you know there were previously in the past joined up efforts to to take on global epidemics. Um, you know, against smallpox, against polio. You had the WHO, which is far from a world government. You know, it's it's a it's an institution that is bought into by its member states. Um, created coordinating bodies that that allowed countries to build up capacity um, to make vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that worked really well in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Um, and so to say that, you know, it's this or some some one world government, uh, you know, again, it's, it's just like a, it's a false equivalency. It's totally historical. The, the point that I think that's standing out from what you're saying is that, you know, what you're proposing isn't even actually that radical. It's just what happened in the 50s, the 60s yeah. and the 70s which was that patents weren't so um, defensively protected and you could have coordination between different countries and countries could say, look, we're making this vaccine. Sorry, it's an emergency. You can't stop us. Yeah, I mean, basically. And it's not to say that, that you know, pharma companies got thrown out to dry or even that they didn't fight for their patents. It's, it's just that, like, countries actually stood up to them. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's within living memory and, and sometimes it seems like a lost world. Stephen Baranyi, thank you so much for joining us. Super insightful as ever. And we'll speak to you soon, I'm sure. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Um, Ash, it has been a pleasure as always speaking to you on a Monday. This is the best part of my week. I say that every week, every week. I think you think I'm just saying it. I'm not. I'm being needy and I'm being real with you, Michael. It's the best part of my week. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Um, I'm sure that's only because not every sort of entertainment establishment is yet open in this country, but we'll, we'll see how long this lasts. Um, I'll be back on Wednesday. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support. <laughs>